Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. And this is a chapter-by-chapter explanation. Now, I want to just be candid with you and say there is way too much information to cover tonight for you to walk away going, got it, good. Went through all 22 chapters, I understand perfectly. That's not going to happen. Not the first time. But if tonight can be the first time, and then you take these notes this week, and you go through them three times, and next week you go through them a time or two, and the week after that you go through them a time or two, you will have it. There's not so much information. You just need to familiarize yourself with an overview of 22 chapters. There's 22 chapters. And I, I want to tell you tonight that there, there's too much to process at a once through, but I'm hoping that part of what happens is that these notes can serve as a resource to you so that you can use them as a little bit of a roadmap, finding your way through the book of Revelation. So tonight is a, a little bit, you know, a lot of information, and I'm not necessarily expecting you to walk away with the same kinds of takeaways that we've been doing in all the previous sessions. I just wanted to make sure to do the best that we could in one session to give a chapter-by-chapter explanation so that you'd at least heard it once. And hopefully, as we refer back to it time and time again in this study, and as you're going to go through these notes again and again, right, on this session, as you do that, you're going to start to get these things rooted in your heart that you can kind of figure it out. You know what I mean? Just think about how hard it was when you learned the alphabet the first time you were told B comes after A. It took you a minute to get A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and get, learn the song. But you figured it out. Well, there's 26 letters in the alphabet, I think, last I checked. There's only 22 chapters. All you need to do is kind of know how each one sounds, kind of like ah, ba, ka, da, okay? Learn the alphabet, learn the 22 chapters, get, your, get a, a feel for each one of these chapters. That's what we're going to do tonight, okay? And so you're going to find that I'm going to go fairly quickly because I want to cover all 22 chapters uh, in this session, and I've only got about 32 minutes left to do it, so better get moving. Um, Again, I want to give you a resource and I want to familiarize your, you guys with these chapters, at least that you'd be familiar. You could look back and go, yeah, I kind of remember. Yeah, chapter six is about the seals. I, I kind of remember that. I want that to be at least an introduction to you tonight. Now, I've got to do a review for just a second of last session, which we talked about the chronological sections and the angelic explanations that are given in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 22. And the reason that I want to reference this is because it's really important that in addition to you having at least an idea of what the 22 chapters are, that you're familiar with the concept that chapters 6 through 22, it's in chronological order with an angel stopping the story again and again. He's pushing pause on the story. And he's telling you important details, and then he pushes play on the story again. Revelation chapter 6 through 22 is in chronological order, but an angel stops the story five times and then starts the story again. And so those are what we call angelic asides or an angelic explanation or an angelic timeout. Call it whatever you want to call it. An angel stops the chronology, says, John, I want to tell you some more cool stuff. All right, John, I'm done telling you cool stuff. Let's get back to chronology and push a start again on the chronology. All right, so that's chapter 6 through 22. That's what we did last week. Now, in getting ready for tonight, 
I want to uh, uh, discuss a concept that we introduced last week and that I want us to get a little bit familiar with, okay? And that is the concept of chapter divisions in our Bible are very, very, very helpful, but we added them. They weren't in there in the original text. They're very, very helpful. Because how in the world would you know what Isaiah, you know, you know, 22.3 is unless you could go to Isaiah 22.3? You'd just be talking about somewhere in Isaiah about, you know, 7,000 words in, God said this. Well, that's, that's horrible. That's a really hard way to navigate. So it is brilliant strategy that we added the Bible verses and the chapter breaks. That's brilliant. But not every time did those chapter breaks get written in my opinion, in, in the perfect spot. And you know what? If anybody could get an 85 on a test, man, look, I, I'm a happy camper with that. And it's probably more like a 95, but there's a few cases where the chapter division probably should have been a little bit further this way or a little bit further, you know, not as far this way. That's just kind of life, okay? And you can see that all throughout the Bible, but in the book of Revelation, it's a little bit important. Here's why. Tonight, we're gonna talk about and we're gonna kind of give a a broad summary that's a bit of an oversimplification of these chapters. It's important that you know, sometimes when I'm referring to chapter whatever, I'm actually referring to a few verses before that chapter starts, and maybe a few verses after that chapter starts, or maybe not even that entire chapter because the chapter before it bled over into that as far as the content, content of what was being talked about, all right? Is that, that kind of making sense? So I'm gonna overly generalize and say chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, but in the text, each one of these, are in the notes, not the text, in the notes, I gave you the breakdown that I'm referring to when I say chapter one. I'm actually meaning chapter one, verse one through verse whatever, and maybe it bleeds over into the next chapter. That makes sense? Okay, so I wrote that down for all 22 chapters, all right, or all, you know, all, all the breakouts, breakdowns. So that way you can go back and go, well, wait, this is a little bit into chapter 18, but I thought he said it was chapter 19. I'm telling you right now, that's the case sometimes, but I gave you the specific Bible verses. And the reason that I'm, I'm breaking it down that way is because I want to be able to talk to you about a chapter, a number, chapter six, and I want to be able to title it something so you can remember it. And the best way to title it is to title it according to the content of what's in it and give you a basic summary of the content that's in that. But what if that content runs over three verses or five into the next chapter? Well, it, it's too hard to talk about it. Chapter one and into two, three, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. So I'm telling you right now, I'm going to oversimplify in two ways. One, I'm going to oversimplify the, uh, the subject matter because there's no way you could teach the entire book of Revelation in 25 minutes. But you could give an overview of 22 chapters. Or Yeah, 22 chapters. So that's the first way we're going to oversimplify. The second is I'm going to call chapters chapters that might be a chapter plus or a chapter minus or might be dead on the whole chapter, okay? Pretty simple. Okay, I just want to make sure you guys are with me. Let's do it. Let's get in. All right. Chapter one. I'm on page two. And we're going to go fast. All right, chapter one is an introduction. This is where John is telling us the purpose of the book of Revelation. And we're also given the greatest description. When I say greatest, I mean the, the most detailed account. The most detailed account of Jesus uh, that I'm aware of anywhere. I mean, as far as in a single passage. 
There are more details given about Jesus, his nature there in this chapter. It is remarkable. And so in this introductory chapter, John's telling us the purpose and we're introduced to Jesus in his heavenly array, in his majestic glory. Okay. So that's chapter one. Chapters two through three, in my opinion, should always have been just one chapter because there's no reason to break it up as far as the information. Because chapters two and three, it's all the letters to the seven churches. And so we broke it up, you know, whoever did all that, broke it up halfway because it's a lot of information. But as far as uh, the content, it's all the same content. It's seven letters to seven churches. So chapter two and chapter three, it's all the same information. And it, uh, it, we, in that, we see these letters, these seven letters from Jesus to the churches. And these seven churches, as we talked a little bit about last week, they, have, uh, they were historical churches with real situations, real issues being spoken to. But the entire book of Revelation was written to the church, Revelation 1.1, so that the church might know what must soon take place. So Revelation 2 and 3 are prophetic realities about the church at the end of the age, not just information about the church in that age. Okay. It's both. And what we see in revelation two and three, the the letters to the seven churches, we see the primary warnings, the primary pressures, the primary difficulties that will face the church at the end of the age. That's the reason chapters two and three are very important to us. All right. Chapter four, the throne room. Now, this is a detailed description of the throne room. And if it's not the most, it's one of the most descriptive um, passages in the scripture about what the throne room in heaven looks like. It's a real room. It's a real place. Like, this is a real room. So pretend we wrote a chapter about this room, and we were talking about where the poles are and the carpet and where some of the frays are in the carpet and, you know, the, the verses on the wall. That's what chapter four is. It's a description of the throne room in heaven. It's really cool. Okay, so that's what chapter four is, a description of the throne room of God. And in it, just as a little bonus, we get to see the host of heaven surrounding that throne room, interacting with that throne room, interacting with what's happening at that altar there before God, interacting with each other. We get a window, not just into what the room looks like and where the furniture is placed, We also get an interaction or a picture of the angelic activity and plus what's going on in that throne room. So that's chapter four. Now, chapter five, the lamb takes the scroll. If you need to be thinking about what is chapter five, it's still taking place in that throne room, but now there's activity happening. There's something powerful occurring. The lamb is taking the scroll. And if you just need a little bit in a, in a phrase or two of what that scroll is, the scroll is the title deed to planet earth. The scroll is the deed to the earth. And Jesus is taking it. Uh, in heaven, it's saying, no one's worthy. No one was found worthy in heaven or uh, anywhere. No one was found worthy. And it says, oh, but wait, there is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. And in this passage, we see him as the slain lamb. He's a conquering lion, and he's the slain lamb. And there's no uh, 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 contradiction, is what I was looking for. There's no contradiction in those two things. This conquering lion and the slain lamb take the title deed to the earth. And you know what you do? I'll just tell you, as uh, somebody who's a happy homeowner, 
When I got the title deed to my house, I signed the papers. It's like, okay, it's officially yours. First thing I did was I went to my house. Okay, that's what you do when you get the title deed. The first thing Jesus is going to do when he actually receives this title deed, because this moment has not occurred yet, but it will. Remember I told you chapter 6 through 22, it's in chronological order. The beginning of the chronology is Jesus receives physically for the first time in his hands the title deed to the earth. And you know what he does? He starts the process of his coming. That's what's happening there in Revelation chapter uh, 5 when he receives the, uh, the title deed or the scroll. Now, the first thing that he does is he's got to open that scroll. And that scroll has six, I'm sorry, has seven seals on it. Chapter six, we now see there are seven seals. You know what a seal is, right? Just think about the, you know, little seal, the little wax seal with the, you know, um, emblem on there, or logo or whatever. Well, there's seven of them on this scroll. So you can't open the scroll, which is the title deed. You can't open it until you release all of those seals. You got to put your finger through all seven of them. Chapter six is Jesus taking his finger and going through each one of those seven seals so that now he can open the title deed and see what's written and start to proclaim it. Chapter six is the seals. Now those seals, more than them being seals on that parchment, on that scroll, they are seven judgments. They are gnarly. They will be the worst things that have ever happened to the planet and it only gets worse after that. And it's Jesus releasing them. Jesus releasing the worst things that have ever happened. Okay, I want you to kind of think about that. Uh, spare the flood, all right? Everything but that. These are like the worst things that have ever happened. And it's Jesus, not the devil, not bad men. It's Jesus releasing these seals because there's, there's importance in it. We'll spend a whole session on, these, uh, on the seals. So I'm gonna keep moving. Chapter six is Jesus opening the seals. Chapter seven, <clears throat> Part of the fruit of the seals being opened, part of the fruit of Jesus' soon coming, part of all that is a great multitude comes to know Jesus. It's a multitude described in chapter 7 that's so countless, it's just so big and abounding that it's like the sea, uh, sand on the seashore. There's a countless number from every tribe and tongue and nation that are coming into the kingdom in a very short period of time, and it's related to the judgments of God, the time frame of the end, and the return of Jesus. Okay, that's really cool. Well, of that, <clears throat> this is kind of answering the question, what happens to the church when the judgments are being released? Somebody asked that question last week. Chapter 7 talks about a seal. Now, this is a different seal. There are the seals that are being opened on the scroll, and those seals are all bad and hurting bad guys. But there's a different seal that's described in chapter 7. It's a seal God puts on the forehead of his saints so they will not be harmed by those other seals when they're being released. The question is asked, what about the church? God will take care of his church. And he will also judge all the wicked at the same time with the church being very much on the planet when it's happening. He will seal the church and he will release the seals against the lost, against the, uh, the wicked uh, Antichrist government at that time. So in chapter seven, these judgments uh, are being released and uh, the seal of God is put on the forehead of the believers and we see that there's 144,000 Jews that are going to come to know the Lord in that time period. And then there's a countless number of non-Jews, of everybody else. Praise the Lord for Jews. Praise the Lord for everybody else. 
We know actually how many Jews are going to come to know the Lord in that time period. It's 144,000. The number of those that come out of the Great Tribulation from every other tribe, tongue, language, and nation, it's so many, it can't even be counted. That's what's happening in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is awesome. It's a good one. Chapters 8 and 9, this is another one of those chapter breaks that just in my opinion wasn't necessary. Chapters 8 and 9 are all part of the exact same storyline. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about the seven trumpets. Okay, the first series of judgments were the seven seals. Now after the seven seals, there are now seven trumpets being blown. And you guys all know the, the, uh, the, the verse that Jesus comes at the last trumpet. The last trumpet, the trumpet call of God, that's when Jesus comes back. So Jesus comes back at the last trumpet. There are seven trumpets that are being blown here. Each one of these trumpets is a judgment. That's what's happening in chapters 8 and 9. <clears throat> Again, I gave you the verses there of where that's at, and it does dip over. I know this is a little confusing. Fortunately, it's the only place that it happens, this and one other, <clears throat> that it dips over into another chapter entirely. The last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, actually happens in chapter 11. And I gave you the verses there. But for our just simplification, chapters 8 and 9 are the seven trumpets being blown. And it's now uh, the judgments are increasing. Remember I told you the seals were bad? The trumpets are worse. And it's happening to the same planet. It's like kind of like really intense. The judgments of God are not God going, I'm so mad at you people, you're just bad. The judgments of God are punitive and redemptive. They're supposed to draw people to God. Isaiah says that when the judgments of God are in the land, the wicked learn righteousness. That's what's supposed to happen. God's releasing judgments to go, I'm real. I'm really, really real. And I do not agree with the steps that you've been taking. I am in total disagreement, planet Earth, with the trajectory that you've been on. I don't agree with you martyring my saints. I don't agree with your witchcraft and your idolatry and your sexual immorality. I don't agree with it. I'm releasing these judgments. Wake up. God's kindness is to even the worst of us to get us to wake up. For God so loved the world. He desires that none would perish. God does not get his way because people choose to turn away from him and do what they want. But God does everything he can to draw the hearts of every human being, including releasing his judgments on the earth that are written in the Bible ahead of time so that anybody who's paying attention could go, um, this terrible, crazy thing that's happening, I think I read it once. This is actually in the Bible. I could tell you what the next one's going to be because it's, this is the sixth trumpet. I know what the seventh trumpet is. I mean, it's prophetic information given actually so that the church has the best messages ever to preach because we know with perfect accuracy what will happen next. And we can proclaim it loud to the people on the earth. This is another reason it is imperative that the church is on the planet, not raptured. That happens at the seventh trumpet when Jesus comes back. All right. <clears throat> now we're in uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10 is fun. It's a bit mysterious. It's not so mysterious, but it, there's <clears throat> a level of mystery that is intentionally left in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is about the seven thunders. You go, what are those? Exactly. We don't know what those are. John asked the same question. John was like, I'm going to write this down. And, Jesus, and John was told by the angel, don't write this one down. And John's like, well, I just got done writing down the seven seals. And then I wrote down the seven trumpets. I mean, we got seven thunders. Shouldn't I write this down too? And the angel said, no, 
don't write this down, seal it up until the end. There will be additional prophetic revelation available to the church in the last days. They will be the ones to seek me and I will give them revelation about what's happening related to these seven thunders that are gonna be released as part of the end time plan of God. So John was told, eat the scroll. John was told as a, as a prophetic act, eat this scroll, digest it, let it get in your stomach. The, uh, the idea is that if we as the end time church would study the scriptures, we would eat the scroll, we would digest it, the Lord would open that seal that's been sealed up and begin to give the church additional revelation because we're the ones that are gonna be alive or our kids and grandkids are gonna be alive when this stuff starts going down. The generation after John didn't need to know those kinds of intimate details, but we do. And it is time for the church to start to get additional revelation that the Lord is willing to give. It's in the Bible. It's all hidden in the Bible. It's all in there. We just got to search it out. We got to eat the scroll. We don't make up new information. We don't follow internet prophecies. We eat the scroll. We eat the scroll. And if we will eat the scroll, we will gain revelation that the Lord wants us to have about life and godliness and the end times. Moving on. Chapter 11. The two witnesses. These guys are baddies. I mean, these guys come out of nowhere. They are operating with prophetic clarity. You can't kill them. Oh, I like people you can't kill when they're good guys. These two guys, they can't die. Nothing, nobody can get to them. Chapter 11 is awesome. These guys are going to be everybody's heroes. We're going to be watching the news wherever we can find a TV that works. We are going to be so ecstatic to watch. What are they doing today? Oh, they're troubling the Antichrist again. He is so mad right now, and he can't kill him. Look at him try. Oh, he failed again. That tank blew up instead of blowing up them. They're indestructible. Two witnesses from God in the end time judgments that you can't kill until it's their day. But that day doesn't happen until the end of the Great Tribulation period. They get three and a half years of invincibility. And more than invincibility, bold preaching. They are calling out judgment and righteousness and truth. They are saying like it is. These guys are going to be the heroes of the earth. And I want to say it this way. They are already the heroes of the church. We just don't yet have a revelation of our heroes. These are two people that God is going to use powerfully in the earth as, a, as, a, as the leaders of the charge for what the church is supposed to be doing. These are not the only two that are going to be doing good for the kingdom of God. They're the two loudest ones. They're the two most anointed ones. They're a picture of what the church is supposed to be doing. That is chapter 11. Now we're in chapter 12. Well, Satan doesn't like that. He doesn't like that one bit. So he starts to have war in heaven and war on earth. We see in chapter 12, Satan's war in heaven. Satan is thrown out of heaven in chapter 12. This is a reality related to the end times. This is where he is completely removed from any of the heavenly courts. You guys remember in, uh, in the book of Job that Satan was, he had access to the heavenly courts. Satan was brought in. Well, that's because Satan has not yet been cast out of heavenly contact yet. That has not happened yet. The book of Revelation is future, not past. When we read the book of Revelation, we need to be recognizing this is information that has not occurred yet. The book of Revelation was given to the church, Revelation 1.1, so that we might know what must soon take place. This has not happened yet. This is future information about a war that Satan is going to cause in heaven. And it says that then he's going to be cast to the earth and that is going to cause us so much problems. When he no longer is 
in the, in the atmosphere. He's no longer in the heavenly realms. He is on the planet physically with all of his uh, principalities and, and high-level demons. That is going to cause significant problems and pressure. That's what happens in, chapters, uh, in chapter 12 that spills over into chapter 13. Satan, too, will have a hero. Actually, too. He will have an antichrist, and he will have a false prophet. In some ways, you could liken them to the two witnesses, except that they're witnessing for Satan, and they're going to be very powerful, and no one's going to be able to kill them. Uh, a little bit more to the story, but we'll just go with that for now. These two guys are going to operate for, those, for the three and a half years, the same three and a half years that the two witnesses are indestructible, and they are championing the call of God in chapter 13. We see these two witnesses, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they are the the darlings of Satan. They are being used of Satan to move the kingdom of darkness forward in the earth. And that's what's happening on the earth. At the same time that the two witnesses are prophesying, these two men are bringing, you know, all hell and fury, and they're bringing rage against the church, empowered by Satan himself in a way that no person has ever been empowered. I mean, people have been very uh, unfortunately used of the enemy. No one will have touched the anointing the demonic anointing and authority that the Antichrist and his false prophet will operate in. That is chapter 13. It's going to cause serious problems for the church. There's so much in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 12 and 13, 13 specifically, about the Antichrist declaring war against the church, raging against the saints, <clears throat> raging against the people of God. And we are here being raged against, unfortunately. The judgments of God will not be our problem. The Antichrist will be. And while we will stand against him, it says in chapter 12 that there will be many who lose their life, but they would not bow the knee, even if it cost them unto death. There were those that by the blood of the lamb and the power of their testimony, they stood firm until the end. That is a fiery believer holding the line in the face of the adversity of the Antichrist. That's, what's, that's what the church is going to be doing. So you don't need to be worried about receiving a judgment from God. We just need to be tactful and know when our day is because there's going to be a serious increase of martyrdom in the last days. All right, chapter 14, the harvest of the earth. Now, we see in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, three angelic messengers. And these three angelic messengers are all more or less saying the same thing from different angles. They're saying, here's how to avoid judgment. Here's how to avoid judgment. Here's how to avoid judgment. And it comes from three different angles. Don't do this. Avoid this. Don't do nothing stupid here. These angels are warning judgment is coming. And it's talking specifically about the great wrath that is about to be released on the earth in the bowls of wrath, which are the final judgments of God. And they are the most violent. These angels are warning the earth Come out of Babylon, don't operate according to these ways, don't follow the beast, don't do these things, because if you do, the bowls of wrath are about to be poured out, and you will be uh, in a serious uh, bad position. In the same way, we see, in the same time period, we see the wheat and the tares, we see the harvest of the earth. You can look at chapter 14 when you got a little bit of time, but it's the two things happening. You guys know the parable of Jesus saying, uh, you know, he's, he's speaking a parable and he, he's talking about the, uh, the farmer who's rebuking his guys who said, hey, do you want us to go pull up all the weeds? He says, do not pull up all the weeds until the time of the end, because if you pull up the weeds before all the wheat is fully developed, you're going to actually yank up wheat. 
I have got a day of judgment. I've got a day of reckoning. And we're going to do that great harvest of souls at the same time that we're doing the great judgment of all of the weeds. We're going to do it at the same time. That's what's happening in chapter 14. Chapter 15 and chapter 16, again, this is just my opinion. I don't see the need for the chapter break. Chapter 15 and 16 are all about the bowls of God's wrath. These are the final judgments, and they're even worse than the trumpets. The final judgments being released on the earth, seven bowls, they're described as, these, these judgments are described as God's private wrath bowls. He's got a collection in his room. Wrath bowl, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're called the bowls of God's wrath, the bowls of his wrath that will be poured full strength into the fury of his wrath, it says. Those are them's mean talk. I mean, that's, these are, this is going to be really tough. This is why the three angels were released to say, don't do it, don't do it, repent, quit being stupid, it's coming. Chapters 15 and 16 are about the bowls of God's wrath. First, it's an introduction. Here are these bowls, here are these seven angels that's holding these bowls, and then we see the bowls start getting dumped out. So chapters 15 and 16 are all about the bowls of God's wrath. They are the fullness of his wrath, the fullness. You just imagine God who has been so patient, slow to anger. You know that verse? He's patient, he's slow to anger. Do you know what slow to anger means? One day anger comes. Slow to anger doesn't mean never angry. Slow to anger means slow, patient. Whoa, wait, more grace, more patience, more. but the time does run out. We need a theology of God that includes a God that will release the seven bowls of the fury of his wrath because there is a time coming where he will release them. That's chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 17, now the, uh, the angel, this is one of those asides, those little uh, uh, angelic explanations. The angel takes John. You just imagine John just saw the seven bowls. He's keeled over. He's like, oh my gosh, how will anybody make it through this? This is so intense. And the angel takes John on a journey in chapter 17 and 18, and he describes the cultural context of the earth. Chapter 17 and 18, if, uh, there is a, a, uh, a chapter break there, and maybe there didn't need to be. I'm going to go ahead and roll with it. Chapter 18 is an introduction to something that nobody was thinking about, John wasn't thinking about, most of Israel wasn't thinking about, and that is another enemy at the end times besides the Antichrist. And actually, an enemy that will come before the Antichrist, and actually an enemy that will cause a whole lot more problems uh, in some ways than really even the Antichrist will. The Antichrist, when he shows up and he starts being bad, the worst thing he can do is kill you. This other enemy will come and deceive believers and cause them to go to hell if they do not follow the ways of the Lamb. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. John is introduced to the harlot Babylon. The harlot Babylon in chapter 17 will be the greatest adversary the church has ever faced. And part of the reason she will be the greatest adversary is because she looks so awesome. She's filled with gold and money and prestige and celebrity appeal. She will be operating in the culture, causing the world to call evil good and good evil causing all of the culture to begin to be seduced into her ways, it is actually a far more uh, furious of a foe than the Antichrist. I'll just give you this. The two longest chapters in the Old Testament 
And the two longest, I'm sorry, the two longest, uh, the longest prophecy in the Old Testament and the longest prophecy in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it's about the harlot Babylon. It's the longest prophecy in the New Testament. The longest prophecy in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 50, uh, 50 and 51. It's about the harlot Babylon. The longest prophecy in the Old Testament, longest prophecy in the New Testament, it's about the same thing. It's about the harlot Babylon. The Antichrist is given like 14 verses in Revelation. The harlot Babylon is given like 60. Yeah, just think about that for a second, okay? We need to become aware of what is going on with the harlot Babylon. Chapter 17, she's introduced. Chapter 18, she's judged. The bowls of wrath being released, they're not actually primarily, in the most primary sense, they're not actually primarily being released against the Antichrist. They're being released against the harlot Babylon system, which billions of people will have bought into and been in full uh, uh, agreement with. Then the Antichrist will jump into and kind of take to the next level. The Antichrist is not the biggest bad guy in the end times. The harlot Babylon is. And it's a subject we don't have a lot of clarity on, and we need to fix that. All right, chapter 19. I'm on page whatever, seven. And we're almost done here, and then we'll break up. Chapter 19, elements of the second coming procession. You know, I was telling you before that Jesus kind of starts the ball rolling, opening those seals. When Jesus comes, he is going to come so loud He is going to come where it says every eye will see him. It's the exact opposite of what he did the first time he came. No eye saw him. Most people didn't even know he came and died and went. No, most of the planet did not know God came. When he comes a second time, it's a sonic boom. He comes with all of the armies of heaven marching behind him. That's loud. Okay, in brilliant, bright glory, in clouds, in flaming fire. On, I mean, it's going to be so loud and bright and wow, and it lasts a very long time. He does not come, show up in 17 seconds, and it's over. He comes like a king coming to kick butt. He comes like a king who's going to conquer the planet that has been one evil decision at a time been given over to wickedness, to the Harlot Babylon system, and eventually the Antichrist. He is coming back to take back the planet. He is coming back as a man of war. Jesus is coming to make war. War lasts longer than 13 seconds. Jesus is coming to make war. He's coming in a procession. Chapter 19 gives us some of the elements of the the coming of Jesus. When we say the second coming, the second coming is one of the most diverse, dynamic, uh, varied subjects in the Bible. It is not just him appearing in the sky and it's over. There are like maybe 15 to 20 subcategories of what is occurring when Jesus comes. Chapter 19 tells us some of those realities, not all of them. Tells us some of the realities of what is it when Jesus comes in procession. The final battle of Jerusalem is included in that. Otherwise, many uh, refer to it as Armageddon. All right. Well, what happens after that? Chapter 20. Chapter 20, now that Jesus has taken over the planet, because it's pretty awesome when Jesus does that. Can't wait for that. It's going to be pretty awesome. It's going to be the story we tell again and again for 10,000 years times a billion. Like we're going to always be referencing, hey, remember when Jesus came back? That was awesome, right? You remember? It was like a crazy day, man. It was, why, where were you? Oh, I was, yeah, where were you in the line? 
of the procession, you know, like after you got raptured and you were a part of the procession that was coming. I was like, you know, six, 675,000 people back. Oh man, that's great. I was a billion and a half back. We're going to be talking and having conversations and talking about the coolest day ever. Well, the reason it's the coolest day ever is because, not because of the bad things and, and even the judgment, it's because it's the beginning of a new era under the leadership of Jesus. Best news ever. And Jesus will lead the charge. Chapter 20 is the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And then it even gets cooler after that. Okay? So don't think that after the 1,000 years, like everything just disappears and becomes nothing. It only gets cooler after chapter 20. But chapter 20 will be the coolest that it's ever been. It's a 1,000 year reign of Jesus on the earth, which ends, if you can believe it, in another rebellion. Satan is locked up for a thousand years. He is not locked up forever. He is locked up for a thousand years. One thousand years. One thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, he's let out of prison. Craziest plan ever. I, Jesus and his sovereignty. He is really into this free will thing. He lets Satan out of prison in order to tempt all the people that have been living in the millennial age under Jesus' leadership. And it terif- it's a terrifying story if you go read it. In chapter 20, it says those that follow Satan in that hour, this is a thousand years after Jesus has come back. It says those that follow Satan in that hour will be like the, si- the sand on the seashore. That's intense. Chapters 21, you just imagine John like, oh my gosh, at the end of the age, there's going to be another age, and there's another age, and Satan gets out of prison. He's going to, all these people are going to die. You just imagine John's like sick in his spirit, right? <laughs> Chapter 21 is the most detailed, incredible picture of heaven that we have in the Bible. It gives us parameters. It tells us details outside of the throne room. Remember, don't think of heaven as the throne room. Think of the throne room as one room in a giant palace inside of a giant kingdom, okay? Chapters 21 and a little bit into 22, and we're gonna call it 21, tell us about the new Jerusalem, talk about heaven, about eternal bliss, about the reality of living in the kingdom of God, living under Jesus' lordship in in forever. I mean, it's just gonna be incredible. And chapter 22, the last chapter, and then we'll break up into groups. Chapter 22 are the final words of Jesus that we have recorded they're the final words of Jesus that happened in, uh, in church history that we have, you know, written down. Because Revelation was written like in 90 AD. Okay, so this is like the last book. They're the final words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. They're the final words of Jesus to the church. They wrap up the book of Revelation, and it's Jesus warning the church. Just think about this for a second. Warning the church how important the book of Revelation is and not to neglect it. It's Jesus telling us, this is really important. Don't change it. Pay attention to it. You'll be blessed if you, if you give uh, underst- yourself to understand this book. It's important. The church needs this. This is how he wraps it all up. Okay. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, where are my group leaders? Hands in the air. All right. So I got John over here, Kaylin here, Andy there, uh, Cass is there, and Luke's going to go over here in the corner. Okay, Luke Fredenberg. Um, and then, Andy, how many in each group? Seven or eight. So if you've got nine in your group, scare off one or two of them, okay? Tell them to go someplace else. All right, so break up into groups, and uh, you've got about 15 minutes. Start those discussions. That's great. So uh, the, the question is, uh, in chapter 12, 
Um, what's going on related to uh, Satan being thrown out of heaven? Is he in heaven now? What is, does he sit on the third floor and hang out and next to the vending machine? Like, what, how, does, how does Satan get thrown out of heaven? What's happening there uh, in chapter 12? Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. So one of the things that's important when we talk about uh, prophecy, when we talk about the Bible, is that we're not just looking at phrases and interpreting those phrases outside of the context of what's happening in the Bible passage. So chapter 12 is describing the reality of the devil being thrown down to the earth. I'm reading uh, verse 12. Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth, the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Okay, that, that right there tells us the context, the timing of Satan being thrown out of heaven, okay? Satan is being thrown out of heaven when he knows that his time is short, and it says, woe to the earth, because you're going to now have to face off with Satan himself. That's like a really bad deal. And if you're like, well, that doesn't sell it enough for me, the verse right before that is the verse that we love to quote about the church standing firm and true for Jesus at the end of the age, verse 11, they overcame by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much to shrink back from death. Therefore, you heavens, therefore, you heavens rejoice because Satan's been thrown to the earth, okay? The context and the timing of what's happening here in chapter 12 is related to the end of the age. Now, what's being described here, you you were told in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared. You guys remember, I think it was session three, we went over the signs, we went over the symbols, we went over the parts of Revelation that are symbolic. The parts that are symbolic, a giant flag is being waved and said, I'm a symbol, I'm a symbol, pay attention to me. This is one of those passages. A giant sign occurred. A sign, a wondrous sign occurred. And then, in the same chapter, that reality is being interpreted. The, the angel actually tells us the symbol and tells us what the symbol means and tells us what's happening. Okay. There is a war that will occur. I mean, there has always been war, but there is the final war for humanity, for the hearts of men that is going to be primarily fought by Jesus through his church and the antichrist and his governing uh, principles. God, the father is backing Jesus as his main guy. Satan is backing the Antichrist as his main guy, okay? That's the war that's, that's all going down. So when it's describing what's happening here, it's describing not heaven, in, and you can go actually look at the Greek on this, it's not describing heaven as the city of the new Jerusalem, it's describing the heavens, the heavenly realms, the, the realms of the air. You know, we, uh, we read in uh, Ephesians 5, it talks about the principalities and the, the powers of the air, It's describing the heavenly realms, the heavenly reality. That's where the majority of the high-level demonic forces dwell. If you ever run into a demon on earth, it is as low level in the, uh, the demonic hierarchy as it comes. We have complete authority over demons on earth. But you do not have authority over principalities in the air. And the reason is they're, they're bigger and better, and they're more rooted, and they've got a whole lot more worship backing them, Okay. What's described here in chapter 12 is the most violent spiritual moment, in my opinion, in history. 
Because all of those principalities, including Satan himself, are dislodged from the heavenly realms and they're thrown to the planet and that's when the greatest amount of problems, war, difficulty, all ensue out of the overflow of that. So uh, hopefully that helps. Again, what we want to do is we want to, it is a tendency of the human heart to see a verse and to not pay attention to all the verses around it. And to forget the context. The context is everything. The context is if you see me out on the street, if you've never seen my wife, and you see me out on the street kissing some girl, if you don't know the context that's my wife, then you might think I'm in, in big trouble. Okay? It's important to know the context of a situation. And so, uh, so whenever we look at the book of Revelation or anywhere in Scripture, you want to pay attention to the verses before it and after it to be able to identify what's happening in that picture. So great question. Uh, yes. Yeah, great question. Okay, so very complicated question. I'm going to do my absolute best. The question is, there's a bunch of judgments that happen in the book of Revelation, three uh, judgment series, seals, trumpets, and bowls. There's also judgments that are talked about in Revelation chapter 18, where the harlot Babylon is going to be judged, and God's releasing judgment. Are those the same judgments? Yes and no. Here's, Here's how this works. The harlot Babylon is going to be a a real city, the city of Babylon rebuilt over in Iraq. Okay, it's already been started. It's being built right now. Okay. The city of Babylon will be a will be the ruling city, will be the headquarters for a global harlot system, which is all the nations coming together and singing kumbaya and saying, hey, let's just all do something together. Let's get a global economy. Let's get a global religion. Let's get a, a global uh, you know, economics, global everything. Let's globalize the world and let's all be in unity together and then let's be completely wicked. Are we all in? Yeah, and all the nations high five and become the most wicked thing that has ever happened in the world and you're gonna watch that happen while we live. That's gonna occur, okay? The harlot Babylon is not a woman, not an individual, it is a system that, is, that will be run out of a, uh, of a city, both with the name Babylon. Babylon, Babylon, okay? So when it talks about the judgments of Babylon, some of the judgments are describing the entire planet, which is Babylon, being judged. Some of the judgments are specific to the city of Babylon being destroyed, Okay? The judgments in Revelation chapter 18, not all, but some of them are actually describing the harlot Babylon being judged, the city, the city of Babylon being judged by the Antichrist. The Antichrist coming in and going, oh, so you were the big deal on the earth? I'm going to destroy you, and now I'm going to be the big deal. And that actually happens at the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. So Antichrist is going to come in and destroy Babylon and say, my new headquarters is Jerusalem. I am now in charge of the planet. You guys all get it? Because I got the biggest armies. I'm the baddest. I'm going to destroy the old ruler of the earth, the harlot Babylon, and, and the primary system. And now I'm going to annex the system. I'm going to say, thanks, Babylon, for establishing this whole global order. That made it really easy for me to step in. Let's start doing that Mark of the Beast thing. Let's go ahead and get that in place, okay? Let's start doing that across the earth. The judgment of the city of Babylon proper, the city, the city, the city, 
gets judged at the beginning of the great tribulation period, and it's actually the Antichrist that destroys it, and that's at the end of chapter 17. Uh, you can go read that on your own. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 describes the Antichrist who was in league with the, with, uh, the Babylon, uh, with the heart of Babylon, now is ticked at her, destroys her, and sets up his new uh, uh, headquarters in Jerusalem. The short answer, the judgments of God throughout the book of Revelation, they're being released against wickedness. Uh, the book of Zechariah actually says about the harlot Babylon at the end of the age, this is wickedness. It actually calls Babylon at the end of the age the title wickedness. Go look it up. This is wickedness, and it's referring to the same Babylon that we're reading in Revelation chapter 18. When God is releasing the judgments against, whether it's seals, trumpets, or bowls, those judgments aren't being released so much against the Antichrist, so much against a person or a city, Babylon. It's being against, released against wickedness and anything that's in league with wickedness. It just so happens the whole planet, again, not the saved, but all the, the lost of the earth, their whole system is going to be in agreement with wickedness and God's bringing judgments against Babylon, which will be the global system. So I know that was a complex answer to a complex question. Yes. Good grief. Okay, so, uh, so the question, the question is, bleh, the question, uh, the question, say it again. Gosh, that was so much. I'll stop you once you start, and I'll, it'll jump start my brain. Pause. Okay, so the question is, um, the separation of the wheat and the tares that I alluded to in the, the uh, story that Jesus was telling or the parable about the end of the age, um, is that the same as the separation of uh, the, the uh, sheep and the goats? Uh, where does this fall, you know, in the end time thing? Is this the same as the great white throne of judgment? Good grief. Okay, um, those, there's a lot going on there. Um, the, the best answer I can tell you <clears throat> is that we want to think of the term, um, I think we, we covered this in one of the previous sessions, the idea of the day of the Lord. The Bible refers to the day of the Lord frequently in the Word of God. And most of the time, actually, most, when it says the day of the Lord and it's talking about the end times, you know, it doesn't actually mean the 24-hour period that Jesus comes back. It actually refers to the season that's leading up to that day because you look at the details that are being released on the day of the Lord, and there are things that take weeks or months or even years to unfold. The day of the Lord is both a narrow reality. It is, the, the term, the day of the Lord, can mean the 24-hour period that Jesus appears. And in a few times it does. Most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time, the day of the Lord refers to the season of time leading up to, you know, the Lord's return. Kind of like we could be like, you know, man, this, this is really my day. You know, this, is, uh, this, this season is, you know, it's, it's my time. It's, it's, I've kind of, you know, come into my own. It's describing a season of time. And most of the time when you read that term, it's describing actually the three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation as the day of the Lord. Why do I bring that up? Because... When we're talking about bringing in the great harvest, that doesn't happen in a day. It happens over a period of time. It's revival. People are going to get saved on Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. It's going to take time for the great harvest to happen. 
Secondly, the judgments of God, the judgments aren't all released in a 24-hour period. They're released over the course of the three and a half years. And it's the judgments being released and it's the revival being released that are bringing about the great harvest and the great judgment. So when we're talking about all of, all of those realities, to get to the moment of, are you a sheep or are you a goat? That was decided over the course of that period of time, not just in the final moment of when they are officially sent to hell or they're entered into uh, Jesus's eternal kingdom. So it's important that we don't think of the, the moment of uh, the, the wheat and the tares being separated as a 24-hour moment because it's actually going to take years. It's the three and a half year period of the great tribulation, which is called the day of the Lord. And so, uh, so there will be a, a final moment where when Jesus comes back, everyone is raptured that has the Holy Spirit that loves Jesus. Everyone will be raptured at his return. Uh, but even the, even the wicked won't all die in a second uh, when Jesus returns. That takes time. And so a uh, very complicated question that you asked. I hope I answered it at least a little bit. Um, and if I didn't, I'm sorry, we'll try to do better in future sessions. Okay, John, question. Yeah, so the question is, I made some statements about, in my opinion, I think that the harlot is a worse and a bigger deal, uh, a greater adversary than the Antichrist. And uh, the question is, you know, kind of speak into that, why, what's, what's the case there? Um, the, the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene and he uh, gets into full power and he's in full Antichrist mode, and the reason I say that is, he's a human being who's going to be born somewhere. And he's not going to be operating as the Antichrist as a one-year-old with a pacifier in his mouth, okay? Uh, I mean, he might be a little rough child, but he's not going to be like in global authority, all right? When he comes into global authority, he's got three and a half years to rule and reign in that capacity, okay? Where he is operating as the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast system, he's killing all the saints in, in you know, the most profound ways, he's telling everybody, you have to worship me or you're going to die. That's a three and a half year period of time, Okay? Well, for one, three and a half years isn't so bad. I mean, three and a half years, I mean, at least you got a clock on the thing. You know you're counting down. Antichrist was just made king. We got three and a half years. It's not going to be four years. We know exactly how much time it is. In that time period, the Antichrist, his greatest desire, he's going to be raging. The Antichrist at this point, the reason he's called the beast like 15 times or something in the book of Revelation is when he's operating in that role, he can't be reasoned with. He is just furious and raging. His rage is out of control. He is a beast, okay? In that mode, the worst that he can do to you is take your physical life. I mean, he could take the life of your friend as well. Those things are horrible. I am more concerned about deception than I am death. Deception is Jesus' greatest warning in the New Testament related to his end times uh, uh, discussions. In Matthew 24, in Mark uh, 13, and in Luke 21, the greatest subject matter that Jesus warns about is deception, deception, deception. Do not be deceived. Do not follow these false teachers. Do not follow these false prophets. False Christ will appear. False prophets will appear. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It is the greatest warning 
in Jesus's warnings related to the end times uh, in, in the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, why? Because it's going to last a whole lot longer. It's going to start off a whole lot softer and fluffier. It's going to start off with, you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about sexuality. We can believe whatever we want. We just, whatever makes you feel good. Like that's, God made us to be able to be free and do what we want. It's going to challenge everything in the Bible. One subject at a time, we're already seeing it happen. It's going to only escalate. It's going to last much longer than the three and a half years. And it's secret. It's behind the scenes. It's not a raging beast. I mean, if, if a guy walked in here in a giant, you know, devil outfit with, with a knife, we would all like know what to do, okay? Run, try to get the guy down. Somebody who's packing some heat, take the dude out. I mean, we, we would know what to do with that. The problem is the Harlot Babylon system is a global system that is arising already now. It's not called that yet, but there's the workings of it are starting that is all about getting compromise to be the rule of the day. That is actually going to wind up calling lots of people. There's multiple times in scripture it says, come out of her, my people. One time in Revelation chapter 18, talking to the people of God about coming out of the harlot system because otherwise we will face the same judgments that the harlot will face. The issue of deception, the reason Jesus said it is because it has eternal consequences. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. He's talking to Christians, not to lost people. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Those who are deceived will wind up in hell forever. Those who are killed by the Antichrist will wind up with a resurrected body that's even more glorious. So the subject of dying at the hands of the Antichrist government is not our biggest problem. It's giving in to deception and compromise. And that is the reason that it's the longest prophecy in the Old Testament and the longest prophecy in the New Testament. Because the church needs to take this seriously to start to get revelation and to stand with love, but truth that's uncompromised. No, we will not bow the knee. We will not give in. You can kill me. You can take my stuff. You can kick me out of the street. You can take my church. You can do this, but no. And God has destiny for your life. Jesus loves you. Jesus has purpose for your life. He doesn't want you to operate in that way. We speak the truth in love with compassion for the destiny of that individual, for the destiny of that group, for the destiny of that organization that hates us. But we do not agree with sin. We do not agree with it. And that is the greatest objective of the Harlot Babylon system, to get the church, and my, how clever she's been already, to get the church to agree with sin. A little sexual immorality, it's okay. A little bit of drunkenness, it's okay. Pride, yeah, that's okay. You can be prideful. All of these things are part of the harlot system that's already developing in order to lure the church out of righteousness and into a great wicked hour. So, great question. Yep. Andy. All right, so uh, Revelation chapter 19 um, says, no, we'll go with uh, chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for 1,000 years. And he threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him. The question was, so it's clear that Satan is locked up for a thousand years, 
And then a few verses later, it says in verse 7, when the thousand years are over, so Satan, now we're going to talk about Satan again, but it's after the thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and he will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth. Okay, so the question is, why? Well, this is my personal opinion. Well, first, he, why? He goes out to deceive the nations of the earth. I mean, that's a, there's no question there. That's what the verse says in, in verse 7 in chapter 20. He goes out to deceive the nations. Now, what's, what's concerning about that, that we want to just like, we want to understand the Lord wants us to choose righteousness. He does not create us with a pre-programmed, I will do everything right. We have the option to do right, right, wrong, right, right, wrong. We have the option to do right or to choose wrong, okay? The earth will repopulate into the point where it's probably billions or maybe even, I, I think it'll actually reach trillions after the thousand-year reign. I, I think that's what's actually being described here. That's just my, my opinion, okay? The, in this time period, Satan is being released by God's authority to go deceive people. To go deceive people. That's what it says. He will go out to deceive the nations. That's like what he's being released to prison, from prison to do. But this is the same word deceive that Jesus said to his guys in Matthew 24. Don't be deceived. It's a choice. It's a decision. No, righteousness. No, the word of God says. No, my loyalty is Jesus. No, I don't care what apple you dangle in front of me. I don't care what offer you give me. No. I actually believe that this is the greatest moment of the proof of the justice of God in any event that's ever happened. Here's the reason I believe that. Jesus just ruled and reigned on the planet for a thousand years, and people are being born, lots of them. Not you and me, we've got resurrected bodies, but there will be people on the earth. They're referred to as those who were left or those who remain. Don't have time to go into it. We'll spend a whole session on it later, or part of a session. There will be lots of people on the earth that didn't take the mark of the beast and that did not get saved. They're lost. Jesus comes back. They see him. They give their life to Jesus, but they don't get raptured because that already happened. That's already over and they will repopulate the earth. These people will have never known a day in their life. Well, how about their kids? So they make babies, now they got kids. These kids that grow up 10 years after Jesus became king of the planet will never have known temptation. Satan's locked up. They'll never have known what it's like to have the accuser of the brethren accusing. They will never have known what that's like. And mom and dad better be teaching their children Satan's going to be released in a thousand years. You need to prepare and you need to prepare the generations after you. Satan's going to be released and he's going to be released to deceive. Don't take the, the bait. At the end of the thousand years, this, in my opinion, is the greatest point of God's justice because justice means the enemy has to have the opportunity to tempt. For there to be justice, for it to be true, Satan has to be given an opportunity, even after Jesus' lordship in fullness for a thousand years, Satan needs to be given the opportunity, well, wait, great, you've been Jesus on earth for a thousand years, of course they're all going to worship you. Let me out of prison for five minutes and see what I can do. Let me out of prison and let me show you really the condition of the human heart. And it's after this that it says, where is it? Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And then the devil was thrown into the lake of fire. This, I, I believe it's all about the justice of God 
actually, because he's, he's allowing Satan, even Satan, to bring about temptation. And men and women must be given the choice to worship God. And they will. And many, most of them will. It's not like this is going to be the majority. They're going to follow Satan, but a bunch will. It says like the sand on the seashore. Okay, good questions. All right. So if you guys would, uh, worship team, come on up. Hey, if you guys would start to put the chairs back for me, and uh, I'm going to pray real quick. I'm just going to ask the Lord to, to give us grace here. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.